Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. How did you know which one was mine? I thought it was anonymous. You're the only one with Star Trek notebook paper. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. This week, Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio and co-author of the Freakonomics books. The newest book by the duo, Think Like a Freak, just came out. Dubner tells us about how he and University of Chicago economist Steve Levitt made Freakonomics, which kind of sounds a lot like our origin story too, Trisha. Wait, what? He's brilliant and fun to work with, and I'm of average intelligence and relatively fun to work with. <laughs> Wait, which of us are you saying is brilliant and which of us is of average intelligence? Obviously, you're the brilliant one, Trisha. No, I disagree on both. I w- actually, I would have disagreed either way. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, Stubner also gives some pretty excellent homework. The whole idea of this book is like thinking like a kid. Yeah. And part of thinking like a kid is just like what you like. Yes. You absolutely. know, don't think about what's classy or sophisticated. Like what you like. We'll also get to know a great lady nerd of history, astronaut Sally Ride. Then some news freaks and geeks can rejoice over right here on Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. I'm Greta Johnson, and this is Nerdette. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio and co-author of the books that made economics cool. But first, let's get to know great lady nerd of history, Sally Ride. 31 years ago, she became the first American woman to go to space. We have to say first American woman because two Russian ladies went into space about 20 years before Sally did. Seven, six, we go for main engine start. We have main engine start and ignition and liftoff. Liftoff of STS-7 and America's first woman astronaut. And the shuttle has pulled the power. Sally was 32 years old on her first orbit. Which means you and I, Greta, need to hustle up on our pre-space flight training regimen. To give us a sense of what Sally Ride was like, we called Sue Macy. She wrote a kid's book called Sally Ride, Life on a Mission that comes out in September. Sue is a great lady nerd in her own right. She's written lots of books about famous women like Annie Oakley and Nellie Bly. And she's written a lot of books about women in sports. Sue told us there are lots of things about Sally Ride that she could relate to, but she was especially drawn to the fact that Sally was a nationally ranked tennis player before she became an astronaut. She was a real athlete, and since I often write about athletes, I really liked that aspect of her life, and it definitely set the scene for her work at NASA because everything I read about NASA is the crew is really a team and they really like team players and when they were looking for astronauts that was an important quality. Sally had plenty of other credentials besides tennis star. She was a brilliant physicist and got her PhD from Stanford the same year she went to space for the first time. And Sue Macy agrees that when it came to Sally Ride the old cliche that sports build character was true. When you play sports you have a foundation of confidence, even if you lose, (laughs) especially tennis, which is such a cerebral game as well as an athletic physical game, the confidence and the 
self-awareness that you need to succeed at that sport helped her deal with any pressures that came her way at NASA. And the pressure on Sally Ride was intense. Here's a clip of Sally from a 1984 interview on the PBS show Nova. I think that NASA did a very good job, especially before the flight, of shielding me from the press and allowing me to train for the the job that, uh, that I was supposed to do. Right after the flight, of course, NASA wasn't there to shield me anymore, and I just had a lot of attention focused on me. I knew during the flight that after the flight I was going to get a lot of attention, so I think that there was quite a bit of extra pressure on me just to avoid mistakes. Uh-huh. Did that make you feel angry or disgusted or proud? Or, I mean, I don't think I felt angry or disgusted. I certainly felt proud. I think that anyone would have under those circumstances. It made me all the more determined to do things right and to, and to look professional while I was up there. What I love about this interview with Sally is that you can hear her balancing the fact that she's essentially representing all of womankind with the extreme humility of someone who just got to look down on Earth from space and see how small we all are. She's awkward and graceful at the same time. It's really cool. I know you've had a lot of questions about being the first woman and a lot of dumb questions and press conferences. I've heard them all. I can't imagine how you survived them. But is there any way that being a woman and an astronaut has made any difference, either positively or negatively or in any kind of funny ways, uh, that you're willing to talk about? <laughs> I really don't think that there, there is any aspect of the training or of the flight where it's made any difference that there have been women astronauts on the crew or not. Our training is uh, really asexual. You know, the, the women and the men go through exactly the same training. The women and the men do exactly the same jobs on orbit, and weightlessness is a great equalizer. You don't need to be strong to do things up there, and it's, uh, there is really no difference. Sally Ride, the first woman to go to space, also has trouble explaining why space is so cool. What is so compelling about going into outer space? Why did you want to go into outer space? I really don't know. I've had a lot of time to think about it, and I don't know what the reason is, but I think that some of the people in the world understand immediately and would love to take my place and would love to go up themselves. And other people really don't understand the reason for it. And I think that it's, it's just something that's inside people that they can't, uh, can't explain. I also love that line because I'm totally one of those people who doesn't get why anyone would want to go into space. I want to go to space. This summer marks 31 years since Sally Ride's trip to outer space. Sally Ride may have started as a slightly reluctant role model for women, but she spent the rest of her career encouraging them to study science. Here she is speaking to a group of young scientists in 2006. To quote Carl Sagan, it's suicidal for a society that depends on science and technology to know nothing about science and technology. Because of Sally Ride, generations of women are less afraid to break through glass ceilings at supersonic speeds. This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita, here with Greta Johnson. Stephen Dubner and Steve Levitt first blew people's minds with their book Freakonomics in 2005. The book is about economics. Which most people avoided like the plague in college because there are a lot of numbers and theories from white guys who died centuries ago. But Dubner and Levitt used the tools of the economist trade to tell stories people actually wanted to read in their first book, Freakonomics, and in their second book, Super Freakonomics. Their newest book, Think Like a Freak, came out this spring. And in this book, Dubner and Levitt have taken the word freak and made it synonymous with a clever mind. It's like when we say nerd, we mean people who are passionate, not necessarily wearing glasses with tape in the middle. Stephen Dubner is a legit nerd and a freak, and his new book, Think Like a Freak, is essentially a how-to manual for problem solving. Freakonomics worked better than we ever dreamed. We weren't sure we were going to write a second one. We liked the idea of like writing one book that did really well and just like drop the mic, we're out of here. <laughs> but we didn't just because, honestly, because we really, really liked working together. So my co-author, Steve Levitt, who lives here in Chicago, he's brilliant and fun to work with, and I'm of average intelligence and relatively <laughs> fun to work with. And so we did Super Freakonomics, which was very similar, different set of stories, but same operating mechanism. And then we decided we definitely didn't want to do that again. And then we had this idea. It took a while. The original title was How to Think Like a Freakonomist. So fortunately, we are surrounded by people who are good at telling us to shorten and, and get wide. <laughs> and basically, we just started for about a year or two brainstorming, like, what are the principles and the tricks of the trade and the rules and the things that we do, the way you look at data, the way you look at the world, the way you acknowledge what you do and don't know, you know, how do we think? The trick here was then to not be all preachy and like, hey, people, the world should be like us, because we right. firmly don't believe that. In fact, if you had too many people that thought and talked like this, uh, you'd probably be in a lot of trouble, <laughs> but maybe a few more. And really where it grew out of is we just hear from all these people all the time, all over the world who write these emails, and they're incredibly inspiring. They want to solve problems or answer questions. And often what's inspiring about it is it's mostly not, hey, how can I make more money or date a better-looking guy or girl? It's mostly not purely self-interested. It's people want to solve problems that will help other people. And we would like to try to help them or answer their questions. And the problem is it's hard. Yeah. You know, the way that we do our work, just to gather the data and analyze the data to answer one small question well can take a long time. I call it the maple syrup school of um, <laughs> thinking. I don't know if you've ever made maple syrup, but as a kid, I didn't. It is a lot of work. You got to tap the trees. You hang out the buckets. They drip, 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 drip. Then you got to go around with a truck or a wheelbarrow, whatever, collecting them all. Then you got to take all that sap and boil it down for many, many hours. And then you get like one little thing of maple syrup. And that's what Steve Levitt does and what I do have in common. You go through a lot of stuff to get a little bit of good. And so because we decided we couldn't answer all these nice emails from people, what if we could write a book that would sort of deputize the world if they wanted to think like us to do so? And that's what this book turned out to be. You don't just give a list of rules and the example that I can pull right from the book is the difference between how many people can remember the Ten Commandments versus the stories of the Bible. If you had just given us a straight list of things about how to think like a freak, I might not have retained them. But these stories are good stories. Yeah, thanks. So I agree. Like the power of a story just cannot be. I mean, I think especially, look, if you work in radio or journalism, you know that to some degree. But I don't really think we think about why a story works so well. So we'd become convinced it had, but we wanted to pull it apart a little bit and understand why. So we came up with a few reasons. You know, obviously stories are resonant and memorable. And as you said, if your goal is to 
give a bunch of people a set of rules like the Ten Commandments. You know, you could say, well, let me write a book about them. And the Bible is the most famous, the most read book in the history of the world. And yet, if you ask people to name the Ten Commandments, modern Americans at least, people are terrible at it. People are better at naming all seven ingredients of the Big Mac or all six members of the Brady Bunch than naming all Ten Commandments. And I'm someone who's studied Bible and written about religion a lot. And honestly, I have to think hard for the Ten. So it gets to thinking about rules versus stories. What do we remember from the Bible? We do remember the stories. So I think one key component of stories that makes them work so well is the fact that we are all narcissists, to some degree at least. (laughs) And when you're a narcissist, which is we all are, when you're hearing a story from someone else, you intuitively place yourself in the story and say, I wouldn't have done it like that. Or, man, I wish I'd been in that position. And, oh, no, that frightens me. And therefore, I would zig when they zag. And that, I think, is the power of stories. It's not just memorable. It's not just resonant. It allows you to engage in it in a way that even if you're a real data savvy or logical person, it may not otherwise. Well, and one thing I really love about Think Like a Freak, too, is even in just like the first 50 pages of it, we're hearing stories about your interactions with David Cameron right before he was (laughs) the British prime minister Mm -hmm. and then about the hot dog eating champion of the world. What do you find to be the most fascinating story that you got to work with while writing this book? Takeru Kobayashi or Kobe, the hot dog eating champion you mentioned, he was definitely one of my very, very, very all time favorites. We tell the story in more detail than many people might ever want to know about how to learn to eat 50 or 60 or 70 hot dogs in 10 minutes. It's not pretty. (laughs) It's not pretty, but you know what? It's just an amazing feat of gastronomical architecture, what he did. It was really, he reverse engineered the process. He thought about the problem entirely differently. He dismissed all the previous barriers that he didn't consider legitimate barriers. So those are kind of the thinking lessons that we draw from it. But then the physical parts are huge, too. He is an analytical and interesting and very aesthetically interesting human being. We just actually did a live event with him in New York the other day where we were doing promoting Think Like a Freak, and we had him come as our guest at the end and do some actual live, full-speed competitive eating and then slow motion to show how it works. And he's so interesting to talk to, too. You know, so the moderator at that event, after he'd just eaten eight hot dogs in like, you know, just a little over a minute, and he'd eaten three or four pounds of what's called pork blood, which is actually kind of a liver-like substance. It was pork blood sprinkled with a whole jar of capers. For some reason, the moderator of this event got into her head that she should have him eat his least favorite foods in the world. And those were two that he named, and then he had to eat them. So he does this massive mound of eating in front of a live audience of seven or 800 people in New York, right? And then he sits down to be interviewed about it, right? <laughs> and so I love it. The first question from the moderator is, so after you've just done this amazing and amazingly disgusting feat of eating all this, how do you digest it? Yeah. And then his interpreter, who's also his girlfriend and his promoter and a lovely person also, Maggie James... She turns to him and she repeats the question. His English is not bad, but in this circumstance, he wanted to have the translation. And then it's this long, long, long question. And then he says, I sleep. (laughs) So it's like, so the beauty of it, and I learned a great lesson from that, which is brevity is the soul of not just wit, but of understanding. It's like, this isn't, the digestion is the easy part. Right. But he was someone who we learned a lot from, and I'd say is one of our favorites. The other, I think, favorite 
the story of a true freak. And I think a lot of this is about what we think as being a freak is figuring out problems in a different, unusual way that sometimes seems obvious in retrospect. Admit what you don't know and you'd be willing to think like a child. These are some of our maxims. But this guy who also did it exhibited one of the tendencies that you have to have, which is you have to be willing to stand some ridicule. And we tell the story of this amazing Australian gastroenterologist named Barry Marshall, who through a series of happy accidents and very clever intestinal detective work, (laughs) figured out that ulcers were not caused by stress and spicy food, as had for many, many, many years been thought. The whole medical establishment said, this is the cause of ulcers. We know it. And therefore, how do we treat ulcers? We'll treat them with antacids and you drink milk and so on. Now, the problem was it never cured the ulcers. Mm-hmm. It just kind of helped alleviate the suffering. A lot of people had surgery for ulcers, including my own father. He had this horrible scar in his stomach when I was a kid because he'd had an ulcer. And the way they treated it was to go in and try to operate, which didn't really help. And this guy, Barry Marshall, came along and he realized by, again, accident and scientific inquiry, that they were all wrong and that ulcers are actually caused by bacteria and that the conventional wisdom had said bacteria can't cause anything in the intestines or stomach because there's so much acid in there, they would kill off the bacteria. Mm -hmm. And then Barry Marshall would see that there were bacteria on all the cultures that he had. And he asked a very childlike question. He said, well, what are those bacteria doing there? If they can't survive... How the heck did they get there and what are they doing? Everybody else, all the other researchers, years past, had just washed off the bacteria, treated them like something that must have come on after the culture was made. Exactly. And so he took the evidence in front of him and rather than dismissing it as worthless, thought, well, maybe that's not worthless. Maybe that's a thing of value and totally changed the wisdom on what causes ulcers. Interestingly, he had this multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry that didn't like his answer because they were making a lot of money selling prescription antacids and doing surgery that he now said wasn't necessary. And along the way, he also helped understand and cure stomach cancer. So guys like that are certainly my freak uh, heroes. Freak heroes. Talking with Stephen Dubner about Think Like a Freak, the new book from the Freakonomics fellas. More with Stephen in just a minute. This is Nerdette. You're listening to Nerdette. We're talking with Stephen Dubner of Freakonomics Radio about the new book, Think Like a Freak. I want to talk a little bit about incentives. This is at the core of your work. And I'm curious how the effectiveness of them you think changes over time. So mm. M&M's maybe work on a three-year-old, a $20 bill on a tween. You're coming into the age of having teenagers yourself, I yeah. believe. Yeah. I think maybe different incentives will come into play. How do we keep changing the incentives enough so that they're effective? That is a great and really hard question because you've identified one of the hardest things about incentives is that even if you find an incentive that works well, there's zero guarantee that it's going to work well six months or a year from now. So what's the answer? It's an unsatisfying answer because it's a lot of hard work. You have to keep collecting data and keep seeing how people respond. The mistake that people make is they come up with something that either does work or they think will work put it out there and turn off their brain, stop thinking about it. You have to keep thinking about it. You have to keep gathering data. I think one of the most astonishing and either depressing or wonderful kinds of incentives that we write about in here is the fact that moral incentives, when you tell people, you know what, you should use less energy, for instance, because it's good for the environment, it's good for your future generations and so on, everybody will nod their head and say, absolutely, And yet, moral incentives in many, many cases turn out to be extremely weak. 
which is a shame. You'd like to think that we're all morally driven to do the right thing. Right. And many of us are. And many of us are some of the time when it kind of works out. But as it turns out for like energy consumption, moral incentives aren't very strong. But a particular social incentive is really strong, which is what we call the herd mentality incentive. Sure. If everybody around you starts doing it, kind of without even thinking about it, you start to do it too. So we advocate thinking a lot. But the fact is, is that most of us, we don't have time. If you had to think through every decision you made every day, you'd never get past breakfast. <laughs> we need the shortcuts. We yeah. need to know who to follow. It's just if you can follow better people who thought hard, we'd all be better off. I was totally peer pressured into starting recycling when I moved to Asheville. <laughs> so I can completely agree with this. And do you still do it? I do. Yeah. I went yeah, to Chicago right. recently and I was like, oh my God, this is so weird. What do I do with this plastic cup? All there is is trash. <laughs> <laughs> and then once it becomes a habit, there's a great book by Charles Duhigg, I think called maybe The Power of Habit or something. It's about how we get into these habits kind of unknowingly, but man, even if it's a relatively big habit, we don't even notice that we're doing it. You know, you and I were talking about that earlier. I have this habit of sniffing the Sharpie before I put the cap on. <laughs> I didn't even know I'd do it till somebody said it. And apparently I've been doing it for like 10 years and, you know, habits are strong. That explains a lot, Stephen. It also <laughs> explains why I always have a black dot on my nose. <laughs> Be sure to read Think Like a Freak, the new book from Stephen Dubner and Steve Levitt. And Dubner has some homework for you that pairs nicely with the new book. I was supposed to be a rock star. That was my first profession. And we got sort of close. I was in this band and we were terrible for a long time. <laughs> then we got less terrible. Then we got sort of good. Then we got a record contract and we actually started to make our first record. And then I decided I didn't want that life and I stopped playing. And so I really went cold turkey. I had a really, really, really hard time listening to music for many years because even though I quit, which I advocate quitting, we write a lot about quitting and think like a freak, part of me still really loved it. And only just recently have I started to listen to the music of a lot of the guys that I knew that were making music back then. And one of them, one of my favorite bands was the Del Fuegos, which I don't know if people really knew that much. They weren't that big, but they were awesome. They were a Boston rock band that were kind of Rolling Stonesy and kind of bluesy. So we played with them a good bit, and I just loved the guys. I loved the band. And one of them, Dan Zanes, he's huge in children's music circles. So Dan Zanes, if you have kids, you know him. If you don't have kids, you may not know him. Everybody's talking about a day up at the lake. Past couple days while I've been out on the road, I've just been kind of homesick and unmoored, and I just wanted to listen to something that made me feel great and happy. And I've been listening to Dan Zanes for the past three days almost nonstop. And I think because it's kind of kid music, it is so awesome. Because a lot of the whole idea of this book is like thinking like a kid. Yeah. And part of thinking like a kid is just like what you like. Yes. You absolutely. know, don't think about what's classy or sophisticated. Like what you like. So go listen to Dan Zanes. I promise no matter who you are, if you've never had kids, if you hate children, <laughs> uh, you will love Dan Zanes. So listen to Dan Zanes' music. Oh, come on out and catch it. And then the other thing I would say is the only really, really important thing that we say in Think Like a Freak is that you should think, period. And it's astonishing how easy it is to go through a day, a week, a month with practically zero thinking. 
because so much of our stuff gets pre-digested and pre-done for us. Now, if you think all day, you will go crazy because it's really hard. <laughs> if you take one-tenth of the time that you set aside for physical exercise and set it aside for nothing but thinking, whatever kind of thoughts, and really try to do that with your mind as a muscle, I promise you something good will come of it. I have no idea what, but something good. Your other homework is also freak-related. One of our very favorite TV shows of all time is Freaks and Geeks, which only had one season because it was, as our pal Tavi Gevinson said, too pure for this world. Why does she hang out with those guys? I don't know. Why don't you go over there and ask her? They're going to ruin her life. If you don't care about high school, then you won't get into a good college, and no future, and you'll wind up dead or in jail. Really? You asleep during Scared Straight? Since it was canceled in 2000, we've all yearned for more from Freaks and Geeks, and this is the perfect fix. Paul Feig's 1999 blueprint for the show, called The Show Bible, which is something that TV writers and creators make to give to network executives to explain the world of the show that they want to create so that they can understand, really understand, all of the characters. Well, this could be a few pages, depending on the show, or if you're Paul Feig, apparently it's more than 20,000 words in a document that explains every nook and cranny of the lives of the characters from Freaks and Geeks. Even if you've forgotten how beautiful Freaks and Geeks was in the last 14 years, it won't take much reading for you to realize how delightful this document is. You can find an excerpt from this 20,000 plus word document on Slate. It's an excerpt from the new book, Poking a Dead Frog, Conversations with Today's Top Comedy Writers by Mike Sachs. If you want extra credit, read the entire 20,000 plus word document. There's a link at nerdappodcast.com. Now we get to hear from you. If you want to tell the truth, it's cool. It's time for Nerd Confessions. Hi, Nerdette. So I've been enjoying Cosmos, as have we all, and their lovely opening title sequence. And every time their producer named Stephen Holtzman flashes across the screen, I throw my arms up in fists and yell, Steve Holtz! Steve Holtz! Steve Holtz! And I can't be the only one. Steve Holt. <laughs> Any Arrested Development reference ever is delightful. So thank you for that nerd confession. That was beautiful. And double whammy, it involved Cosmos. Can we start saying Neil deGrasse Tyson's name like Steve Holt? It might be too long. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> Call us at 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags are welcome. Or you can suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile. Or just say hi. We like voicemails. You can find us at wbez.org slash podcasts. Our Tumblr is nerdatpodcast.com. We've posted a link to a set of lovely portraits of female astronauts from throughout history, including Sally Ride. And also a link to a video about the incredible life of chemist and inventor Stephanie Kolick, the woman who invented Kevlar. When I look back on my career, I'm inspired most by the fact that I was fortunate enough to to do something that would be of benefit to mankind. It's been an extremely satisfying discovery. I don't think there's anything like saving someone's life to bring you satisfaction and happiness. In the video, you can see this incredible female scientist tell her life story. She died last week at the age of 90. We'll be back next week with more stories of great lady nerds of history, 
In the meantime, you can talk with us on Twitter at Nerdette Podcast and like us on Facebook. Nerdette is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. Joe Dassault is the president emeritus of our AV Club. Hey, chicks dig smart guys. Who knew? Additional production assistance comes from Iris Lynn. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Thanks to Stephen Dubner and Sue Macy for talking with us. And thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Throw us some stars and leave us a review on iTunes if you're feeling benevolent. Like Sedge Sprite did on iTunes. Thanks, Sedge Sprite. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.